Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, this is the final sermon then that I have on the Roman Catholic Church and their gospel. My goal is simple. It is to show you how the gospel, which is, as we've said, the good news, that's all it means, that how the gospel, the good news that they teach and proclaim is, in fact, not good news. It is a gospel, in fact, that damns the soul for all eternity. Now, I know that is strong language, but I would argue it is necessary language. One can argue that they know their grandma or their aunt or their mother or their father, whoever it might be, and they can say, but I have seen him and he was such or is a such a devout Catholic. He is so devout, and yet you must understand that devoutness will never save anyone. There's only one thing that saves you, beloved. It is the gospel, the true gospel, and that alone. And therefore, it is my argument, not because I've decided to make it my argument, because the scripture compels me to make it, that the gospel that the Roman Catholic Church teaches is not a true gospel, but in fact, it damns you. Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples, he warned them about the effect of the Pharisees' teaching upon their souls, and he likens it to that of leaven. And he says, all you need is a little bit of leaven, or yeast, if you will, and you put it in the lump of dough and give it time, and it will go throughout the entire dough. And he says that the Pharisees' teaching is that yeast, that leaven. It corrupts. And so he then makes this very astounding statement in light of that. He says, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The people looked at the Pharisees and they were afraid of them. They had so much power and they they had so much influence and they even held their lives in some way in in their hand. And so the people were afraid of them. And he says, you're afraid of the wrong thing. There's only one thing that has control over your eternal soul and that is God himself. So fear him and everyone else don't worry about. Make certain that the one thing that you're able to say is that you are honor and fear and worship and believe in the only the one true God. I would argue that the Roman Catholic Church is really no different from the Pharisees. There is much by way of the appearance of godliness, but in reality, they put the burden of salvation on the shoulders of the people rather than solely in the hands of our Creator and God. 
So they will say that Jesus is the Savior, but then they say you must merit that salvation in an ever-increasing way. They say that sin is laid upon the body of Christ, but then say you must pay the penalty and justice due to your sin through meritorious works or the burning fires of purgatory. And the list would go on and on. In fact, I will make this statement up front. I would argue, I would propose that the truly happy Catholic is a Catholic who does not know what his church teaches. Let me say it a slightly different way. I would say that the truly happy Catholic is the ignorant Catholic. Because the greater one learns what the church actually teaches versus what you thought it taught, you find that the burden will become all the more heavier. There shall always be more that you must do. The bucket that is called your justification, your righteousness, can never seem to be fully filled. It's always going up or down, up or down, depending on how well you are doing. And until it is utterly filled with absolute, pure, real righteousness that you labored over, you will not be saved. In other words, for a Catholic, the words... It is finished, which are those words of infinite joy and rest uttered by Jesus on the cross, have no meaning to a serious Catholic. At best, those words mean it has begun, and now you finish it. So let me give you a brief recap of what we talked about over two weeks of this. We have considered how the Roman Catholic Church views sin both in the non-believer and the believer. All are born under the sin of Adam and all have a disposition or predisposition towards sin. We would agree with all of this. For the Catholic, the original sin is resolved, though, through baptism and only baptism. So, I can thank Lauren Ankahas for my real buckets this year, this time. If you remember, I put some vague trapezoid-shaped thingy and called it a bucket. She had pity on my soul and quickly fixed that. But what we learned in that is that when you are baptized, either as an infant or as as an adult, excuse me, You now have some righteousness infused into you. The bucket is your soul, and and real righteousness has now been infused into you, but only a certain amount. And it's now your job to then fill the bucket with genuine, real righteousness. Whenever you sin, a venial sin, if you recall, which is a lesser sin, then what happens is the level goes down. And then you fix that through the various sacramental works the church gives you. If you commit a mortal sin, then the bucket goes empty, completely empty. There's not a shred of righteousness in there anymore, and you are now dead in your sin, like you were before when you were not a believer. And the only way you can resolve that now is not to be baptized again, because baptism only works once, they say, but rather penance. 
And so you do the penance and, and you start that with confession. And then it's the second thing that always gets me, and that is you have to do an act of contrition. And and the priest will give you the act of contrition that you must do. But here's the trick that the catechism makes very clear. You must hear this. The act of contrition is not all by itself. You don't just do the act of contrition and take care of this mortal sin. It has to be done not because you're afraid of punishment, not because you're afraid of going to hell, which is what's going to happen to you if you don't get this sin dealt with, But actually, the act of contrition must be done because you have genuine, keyword there, genuine sorrow for offending God. Who gets to say you've had genuine sorrow? Even if the priest says, I absolve you, which is what his job is, doesn't mean you're absolved if, in fact, your heart is not really sad because you offended God with your mortal sin. And so, the, the catechism teaches that it is not accepted if you don't have genuine sorrow for offending God. And after that, then you are to do works of satisfaction that still need to be performed. And all of that is designed to begin to pay off the debt you still owe to God's justice. Well, then this led us down the path of learning about meritorious works. And one of the things I told you to remember is it's wrong to say that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you are saved by your own self-righteousness because they don't teach that. They are very clear in teaching that it is through faith and grace. Oftentimes people say, well, we believe that salvation is by faith or through faith and by grace and you believe it's through your works. No, they don't. They would argue all the way through this is faith and grace. They would say that without the work and person of Jesus Christ, no hope for salvation. But what's missing in all of that is the word alone. The Bible teaches that you cannot add anything to faith or grace or Jesus Christ himself. You are justified by grace alone. You are justified through faith alone. You are justified through Christ alone. And in that little word alone, we would say heaven and hell are separated for a person. The Roman Catholic Church, on the other hand, says that you can only be justified by faith plus good or meritorious works. You have, had to have grace plus what you merited through the sacraments. You had to have righteousness of Christ but also your own merited righteousness as well. And so they teach you to perform these various works of merit. Now, these works do not force God, they would say. Again, these are subtle distinctions, but you have to understand them or you'll just annoy a Catholic because you'll show that you don't know what you're talking about. They would argue and teach that the works you do do not force God to do anything. No one can force God to do something. That is the whole idea that a word I taught you about condign merit. Ask the average Catholic, they will never have heard of it, but that is a key aspect of the issue of merit and works within the Catholic system. Condign merit says that when you do this, it forces an action. 
So they would never say, because you did this good work, it forces God to give you righteousness. But instead, what they call it is congruous merit. And what they mean by that is that it is though God has not actually promised or God is not actually forced to do something because you did this merit. Nonetheless, the merit is so meritorious that it would be incongruous or unfair not to act on your part. So though God's not forced to, the reality is he will in fact act by giving you greater righteousness, greater grace through that merit. And all as you do all of these works of merit, you are doing it to satisfy God's justice due to you committing sin. So for the Christian Catholic, or for the Catholic rather, sin is their constant enemy, and they're trying to beat it back and push it back so that they do not lose the righteousness that they have so diligently worked toward filling up the bucket. So with this in mind, we are now able to finish up on why this gospel preached by the Catholic Church is a soul-damning one, and the best way to do it is by examining what they mean by this phrase or term or theological idea called justification by faith and what the Bible actually teaches. So we move on to the issue of faith or, or the verb to believe. The Roman Catholic Church teaches faith and grace and justification. But, and you'll find more and more that you study the Catholic Church, there's almost always a but. But, they do not teach that justification is through faith alone or by grace alone. Remember that the whole battle that we're dealing with here really centers upon that little word alone. Are you justified by grace alone? Are you justified through faith alone? Or to say it another way, are we justified by Christ alone? That's what you want to ask them. And if they actually say to you, yes, you need to probe because they clearly don't know what the Catholic Church teaches. You need to tell them, you go ask your priest if that's true. This is a driving issue that actually created what was called the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. As as all of this unfolded, the Roman Catholic Church had to respond to it. So they convened a very formal council. When they did this, they brought out more official dogma or teaching on for the Catholic Church to believe. It is known as the Council of Trent, and it addressed the charges that were being made against the Roman Catholic Church at that time because men like Martin Luther and others were clearly declaring that the gospel that the church was teaching had been lost and they were in fact teaching a false gospel. Now front and center to this whole council was this discussion of justification. Justification is an act in which we are either declared righteous or made righteous. That's really the issue. When you are saved, does he put his righteousness in you, or does he declare you to be righteous? Which one? It's worthwhile to remember that the Roman Catholic Church can never annul 
formal councils like Trent. So whatever is taught in a formal council, so the Council of Trent, the the, uh, Second Vatican Council, whatever it might be, they're always official and they must stay as absolutely true. They never can change it. So whenever you, if you think you can reject what the Council of Trent taught and remain a faithful Catholic, in fact, you can't. In fact, the, the Catholic Church teaches that for you to willfully reject any part of the dogma of the Catholic Church is a mortal sin. You either are all the way or not at all, but there is no middle ground within the Catholic Church. Now, at the council, several issues were discussed, but justification was the major one. The church formally laid out what they believed and taught about justification, and then they spent time with issues related to condemning various positions in opposition to the formal official Catholic teaching. The actual way this was done but was by saying this phrase, Yes, Uh, uttering this phrase, if anyone believes such and such, let him be anathema. Now, that's not a word that people use today, but it's a good word. It comes out of Galatians 1, 8 through 9 that you have up on the screen. He says, but even, this is Paul writing, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, He is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now notice that Paul is the apostle and he's writing to this church and he says that there are people who will bring to you good news. They will bring to you a gospel. But in fact, it is not a true gospel. It is not true good news. And he says, you are to judge that gospel preached in, uh, in accordance to, is it consistent with what the apostolic teaching has been? He says, the gospel that we brought to you, you compare that to the gospel they bring to you, and if the, their gospel is contrary to what we taught you, they are to be accursed or anathema, meaning they are to be under the judgment and curse of God. So we're not talking about something that is uh, good people can disagree on, but it doesn't really matter. Let me say this very kindly to you. For some of you, though, you treat your relatives in the Catholic Church like that is true. Like these are minor disagreements. They're not minor disagreements. They're major issues. Understand what Galatians is saying and understand what it means. If the Council of Trent condemns and places God's curse upon something that is actually true, then they are condemning truth. So it's very important to grasp how utterly life-altering this whole thing is. In other words, the passage in Galatians cuts both ways. It is all about the gospel, how one is saved or justified. Therefore, if the Roman Catholic Church is correct, then you and I are accursed if you believe as I do. Get that in your head. You are accursed. You are heading to hell and under his eternal curse. But 
if they are wrong, then they and all who believe like they are accursed. Do you see how there is no middle ground? And you must treat it that way. It is here then that you see it's non-negotiable. So to be justified by God is to be saved. It is at the core of the gospel of salvation. It's how we have forgiveness of sin, how we are at peace with God. It's how we are promised eternal life and so on. So we have to get this right, beloved. And if a church or person claims that what they teach and believe is the true gospel, but it's not what the Bible teaches as the gospel, then that person or organization is false. And that's why we decided to do what we're doing. I'm doing the Roman Catholic Church and the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? And you're doing Islam and the Mormon Church. All of these are people that are bringing to you claims of having a gospel that's true. We spent four weeks showing you the gospel in its most basic sense, and now we want to show you and compare that to what you have going on out there so that you might be wise and so that you might be better equipped to share the gospel rather than think that maybe they're okay, they're just a little off. These organizations teach a lie. And they are to be rejected because they're under God's abiding curse. It really is that brutal. And it's really that simple. So with that in mind, understand that the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent teaches that faith is a necessary condition for salvation and for justification. Don't think that they don't. They would say, yes, faith is a necessary condition. But that phrase, necessary condition, is a technical phrase. But I would say we want to, again, stop saying that they teach otherwise. They would say justification is by faith. And you would, if you're not thinking, say, oh, I guess we agree. But what they will not say is that justification is by faith, what? Alone. And that's where heaven and hell hang. It's all about alone. Now, Roman Catholic Church teaches three aspects of faith. And I want you to see how they word it because it's, it, it's very clear that they believe strongly that you must have faith. There is the initium, that's the starting place of justification. It is the way in which justification begins its process. It begins... With faith. So that's where it starts. Second, it's the fundamentum. Faith is also the foundation, in other words, upon which justification is established or built. And it is a rodex, meaning the final, and finally, faith is at the core or the root of justification. So when you listen to them, they would say it this way. They would say, no, you don't understand. Faith is the starting place of justification. It's the very foundation that justification is built upon, and it is at the root of all justification. And that, again, if you're not listening careful, you'd say, oh, I guess they do believe it. No. By now you should realize that the Roman Catholic Church and what it teaches is never quite straightforward. Because the devil, so to speak, is in the details, and in this case, it is in the terms used. 
just like sin. Remember what we learned. Sin is sin. But sin can be materially sin, yet not formally sin, meaning that you're guilty of it. But you did it, and yes, it would be materially sin, but it doesn't count as sin. Or to say it a slightly different way, a mortal sin can be a mortal sin materially, but only formally it's a venial sin. So it is with faith. Is faith alone sufficient for salvation or justification? Remember, I said that they would argue that faith is a necessary condition, but is it a sufficient condition? Faith is necessary. They would agree with us. But that's not the same thing as it is sufficient. What this means is that faith is necessary for you to be justified and saved. So if it's necessary, then the next question that you should ask them is, yes, okay, I agree with that, but is it sufficient? Meaning, is faith all you need? That's where the word alone comes in. And the Roman Catholic Church says it's not sufficient. So yes, they say in all ways, shape, or form, faith is informing itself in the idea of becoming justified, but it is not sufficient in itself to justify. What else is needed? What must you or I add to our faith so as to be justified before a holy God? And their answer is the sacraments. You go and do the meritorious works built into the sacraments, and that, along with your faith, will bring you to the state of eventually being justified by having that bucket filled. So let me repeat this again to understand that the issue of faith for, uh, to understand the nature of faith for our justification. You can have faith. You can have faith in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, but it's not sufficient for justification. They would say it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So the Roman Catholic Church says justification is by faith, but it's only the initial stage of justification. It's at the root of it. It's at the foundation of it, but it's not the only thing that brings it. Now all of this brings a guy named Aristotle in. He's famous for many things, but one, of, one that impacts justification, especially with regard to Roman Catholic Church, is this concept of causality. He developed what is known as the four causes. Just type it in, the four causes, and you'll learn more about it than perhaps you care to. We won't go into it, but you can look it up. Aristotle, from, out of this teaching of Aristotle, there was then developed the idea of what's called the instrumental cause. What are the tools that are necessary to bring about the change? So the four causes are really looking at how does change happen, and there's these four causes that he came up with. Well, along with that came this other one called the instrumental cause. What are the tools that you need? Well, the Catholic Church teaches that the instrumental cause that makes a person justified is the sacrament of baptism. What you do is you bring the child to the waters of baptism. They are baptized in the name of the triune God, and that is the instrument that brings about justification. 
If the baptism does not occur, then you never, ever were justified. You never entered into the path of justification. But the Roman Catholic Church also declares that God will never declare a person justified unless the person is, in actuality, just. Meaning there is absolutely nothing of sin left. You must be totally and perfectly righteous in yourself. You must be inherently just. There is no idea of being declared just or righteous. You must be actually just and righteous. The tools, the necessary tools, the necessary conditions for that is faith, baptism, and the other sacraments. Sacraments, excuse me. So now... After all of that, we can begin to put it all together. The Roman Catholic Church says that if a person, a Catholic, who has been baptized, performing, performed the sacraments, but has committed a mortal sin that was not dealt with through the sacrament of penance, dies, he is in hell. He has to go to hell because it erases all of it. But if a baptized Catholic lives and does all that he is to do through the sacraments and then dies and he doesn't have any mortal sins unresolved properly, all he has is just some venial sins that need to be dealt with, then he is still not justified, but he now goes to a place called purgatory, and there the fires burn that cleanses him from all of that until the bucket is full. And once it's full, God says you are justified, and now you are saved forevermore. So what does the Bible say? Well, if you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Psalmist writes that. If he marks out your sin, which of us will ever stand? For all have sinned, Paul says, and fall short of the glory of God. This is the problem that we actually face. The problem that we all face is that God is just and we are not. God is righteous, and we are not. So how then can a man be found just before a holy and just God? As we have taught, the Roman Catholic Church has the idea of justification as a journey. It starts with the baptism, continues on through your life by the various sacraments, assuming you die Without that mortal sin, then all you've got to do is wait it out in purgatory and you make it. But I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And it's here that we begin to find the answer as to why we must reject that kind of thinking. Why it is contrary to what God calls us to do. So Romans chapter 3 And in this, we see all that Grace and I have taught over the last four weeks prior to my series here on Roman Catholicism. We're going to start in verse 19. Paul is laying out the reality of sin, that all of us are in sin and under sin. He says that in verse 9, that both Jews and Greeks, if you're not a Jew, then you're a Greek, you're a Gentile, you're just, that's us. We're all under sin. 
And then he quotes passage after passage from the Old Testament. And now he comes to verse 19. I want you to follow what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. So the law of God, now remember in the Catholic Church, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are the basis for all mortal sins. Every sin you commit that's a mortal sin is a violation of one of the commandments. And so the law of God is given by God, Paul says, and what it does is it stands as a testament of God's righteousness. God says, you must be this righteous. But note, in verse 19, what the law will not do. It cannot save. It's not even an instrument of justification. Rather, what it is is an instrument to shut what? Your mouth. To shut your mouth. The law of God does not serve you as your guiding principles. The law of God becomes something that drives you into hell by shutting your mouth and showing you you are not righteous. It's an instrument of condemnation. In verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be what? Will be justified in his sight. Why? For through the I'm sorry, for through the law comes a knowledge of sin. So now we have the explanation why we all have to be shushed. Because, because no person is justified through, and that, that is speaking of the instrument, the instrumental cause, okay? No person will ever be justified through these works. You do things, and you think that you can find justification. You can fill that bucket, but you fail. All the law ultimately does to you in this verse is judge you guilty. So then the question becomes, where's your hope? What, what hope do I have? I am an unjust man, and I'm trying to keep the commandments. I'm trying. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I, I'm a good Catholic, and they say I must do these things, and they're all related to the Ten Commandments, so I'm trying them, but you're t- saying that the Bible says that no one can be justified, but that's what I'm trying to do is become justified. Well, verse 21 says, but now... Apart, note that, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known or manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets. So whatever we're looking for, for this justification, it has to be apart from what? The law, it has to be. Not under it or in it or around it. No, it's just apart from it. It's not alongside it. We Our justification that we might have cannot be found there. You have to turn, which is what we mean by the word repent. We have to turn from the efforts to obey and please God because there's no hope in that. God has made his righteousness known apart from it, and that means we have to look elsewhere. And now we are asking the question, where then do we find it? And verse 22 answers it. Even the righteousness of God Through, here's the instrument, okay, the instrumental cause, through what? 
And what's the object of your faith? In Christ or Jesus Christ. Not in Jesus Christ plus. Not one hint of plus in there, right? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So simple. So straightforward. Where do we find it? It's through faith in Jesus. And that is why we say that justification is by faith or through faith alone. That it's ours simply by believing the person and the work of Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. But what the Catholic Church will tell you is justification only begins there. By faith we trust that through baptism we enter into justification. But they don't stop there at that point. It's only a potential justification that will only become actual by a proper performing of the many works of the law. Verse 23 restates it and makes it clear yet again, all are sinners, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us need to be justified. And so the apostle continues into 24, being justified as a what? Of a gift, and it's by his grace. No hint, again, of anything other than it is a gift by his grace, and it comes through the instrument again here, okay? What's the instrument? Through the redemption, which is found in Christ Jesus. It's all Jesus. That's why we keep telling you. It's just Jesus. It's always Jesus. It starts with Jesus. It continues with Jesus. And it ends with Jesus. No man, woman here in this room will ever come and stand before God and he say, what right do you have to enter into heaven? And you start telling about how you read your Bible and went to church and you did this and you did that. You are resting in your own efforts and you will be in hell. The only thing that brings you into heaven, the only thing that brings you into a declared state of being justified, the only thing that gives you hope is Jesus. And you put a period right at the end. Many of you have seen the famous uh, Alistair Begg illustration of the thief on the cross. And, and he, he, he's talking about the thief shows up at heaven and, and they're like, so what are you doing here? I, I won't do it and I don't have the cool Scottish brogue. Anyhow, so I fail miserably on every part. But bottom line, they're all concerned about how the thief get here. He's like, look, I don't know. The man said I could come. The man in the middle of the, cro- the middle cross, he told me I could come. That's all he needed. That's all you need. Some of you, I still are, I'm not convinced you understand the gospel and why it's so good. You're so desperately trying to prove to God that you're good enough, that you're serious enough. Beloved, all you do is condemn yourself in that. You will never be good enough. That's what makes the good news so good. It's never going to be on you to try a bit harder. It is always found in Jesus. He was good enough. He was the perfect obedient one. He was the perfect substitute for you. He is the one that perfectly defeated death. And it stops there. So he says in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that's in 
Jesus Christ. So it speaks of the death of Christ. And it's out of that that he redeems and frees people from the slavery under sin. But notice that this redemption in verse 24 is a past event. He did it once at his death, never again to be repeated. Now you compare that to the mass. The mass being said right now throughout this world, each one of them claiming that what the priest does when he utters a specific phrase is that he makes Jesus enter the host of the bread and the cup and it becomes the body and blood of Christ and they sacrifice Christ all over again millions of times every time they do a mass. The Bible just simply says it was a redemption and it's done in Christ. It's a finished work. This is where faith comes into play. We believe that truth. God will justify us not on how we perform, but in the redemption that's found in Jesus. Verse 25, enlarges whom, so now he's going to talk about this Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, for a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So he enlarges, and now he, he's not telling us to then go and perform various acts as penance, to go keep the sacraments. He doesn't add that, having believed, now let's start doing these things. Rather, it's because through Jesus we have propitiation. Now, that doesn't bless most people because they don't know the word, but it's a, a good word that you should learn. It's ancient, and it has an ancient meaning. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament. It's, behind this word is a very important truth of God's wrath. That's your problem, right? We're sinners and under the wrath of God. And it's in this wrath where propitiation comes into play. God is angry, righteously angry. He's filled with wrath against us due to our sinful rebellion. The psalmist writes that he is angry with us every day. The result is that we should fear the wrath. For if we experience it, we will be in hell for all eternity. So how is God going to have his wrath propitiated? Say it another way. How does God's wrath become pacified or appeased. How do we find peace with God if he is that angry? How is God's wrath propitiated? In every other religion, including Roman Catholicism, in every other religion, the answer will always lie with you, what you must do. You are responsible to appease the angry God. But that's not what we find here. Look at the verse. What, what do we find here? God is angry with us. And yet he is the one who does what is needed to appease his wrath. God took his son and declared him to be the propitiation. God poured his wrath out on the son in that moment on the cross. You and I will never, ever taste a drop of the wrath of God if our faith rests in Christ alone. So he sends his son into the world. He's that perfect sacrifice, and in it, he removes the wrath. And how do we receive it? By works? By sacraments? 
by this gradual building up of righteousness? No. By faith. And faith alone. Why is this all important? In verse 26, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who what? Has faith. Look at your Bibles. Don't look at me. I don't care. Don't, I am not important here. Look down at your scripture. Let the scripture speak. You say, I know the scripture. I don't care. Look at it anyhow. Look at your Bible. Everyone's heads down. I think he's mad at us. I'm not mad at you. I just never want you to think you've heard these things enough that you don't need to look again. Don't ever do that. If my head's down, and I spent how many weeks studying all this, your head should be down. The Word. We're submitters of the Word, right? That is the only thing that matters. For the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time, so that He, God, would be the just and the justifier of the one who isn't, it doesn't say has faith in Jesus plus, right? It just has faith in Jesus. That's why we say in faith alone. He doesn't just pretend the sin is there and it's getting taken care of. What, if he puts it upon us to pay for that sin, even a little bit, we will fail. So how does a just God justify sinners? By making his son, Jesus our Lord, become that satisfaction. That propitiation. So now God is just. God is still righteous because he hates sin. He hates sin so much that he poured it out upon his only son. And now the one whose faith rests in Jesus Christ, the propitiator, the redeemer, the savior, is now justified. God can justify him. The one who... The one who believes whose faith rests in Christ alone. Never in their own efforts. Go over now to Romans 4, and we'll look at a couple more things. In Romans 4, Paul picks up this whole argument and theme and considers then Abraham. Why? Why does he pick up Abraham? Well, because the Jew would look at Abraham and think that because they're his offspring that they're somehow accepted by God. They have the right lineage. They have the mark of the circumcision which means that they are people who obey the law. But, but the problem is that though a Jew was circumcised, Abraham was justified when he wasn't. And the Bible says that God called Abraham to follow him, and it says that Abraham simply believed God, and it was reckoned, it was declared. It wasn't that he was made righteous, he was declared righteous. Now look at verse 13, because of time, we have to skip some passages. I spent seven years in Romans. You can get all those sermons and have fun listening to them all if you have questions on the ones I uh, skip. But in verse 13, he says, For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of what? Of faith. So the righteousness, the justification, doesn't come through the law, but it's always going to come through faith. Verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith has been made what? 
empty. And the promise has been abolished. Do you see that? Do you see how it just rips the works out? It, it says you have one or the other. You can't have faith plus your works and you make it in. No, because the faith then goes away. It has to be faith alone. Now, why is it? Verse 15, for what the law brings about is what? Wrath. But where there is no law, there is also no trespass. What we have is through faith, we have the freedom from the law, and we have find redemption, propitiation, and life in Christ. Now skip all the way down to verse 22. Here we see that Abraham became, becomes our model. God did not only reckon him as righteousness in verse 23, but he says here in verse 22, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 22. Therefore it was also counted to him as righteousness, not for his sake only was it written that was counted to him, but for our sakes also, to whom it will be counted as those who what? Believe upon him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. It's faith. No hint of doing things. No hint of a process. It is a call to believe that God sent forth His Son to be our perfect payment for sin. By dying in our place, by rising from the dead, defeating the power of sin. So now look at verse 1 of Romans 5. And here we come to that wonderful word, therefore. In light of all the things that Paul has said, therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have what? peace. We have peace. That's not a feeling of peace. That is real peace. We are no longer enemies of Christ. We are no longer en at enmity. We are no longer under his wrath and his fury. We have peace. It's not a peace that we will eventually have. We have it now. But how does the peace come about? Look at it. Having been justified. Beloved, this is all about grammar. It's not now being justified, but having been justified. It's a done deal. It's finished. It cannot mean being justified or beginning to be justified. It just simply means it's done. This is what makes the doctrine of justification of the Roman Catholic Church so vile. It's not done. You're working your tail end off all the way in and after death to finally become justified. And the Bible simply says, in Christ, you have been justified. How? How were you justified? Say it. By faith. Plus what? Nothing. Nothing at all. Faith alone, he says. Having been justified by faith, we now have, we abide in this peace. That is why the Reformation took place. That's what happened back in the 1600s that was so radical. The glorious promise that God our Father has done all that is needed for us to be declared righteous. It's finished. Let's look at one more passage. You know the passage well. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You can just look up if you want. Just don't look at me or I'll yell at you. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. Let no one should boast. So what saves you? By grace. It's by grace that you're saved. Unmerited favor. Something unearned, undeserved, that you're not worthy of. It's just given to you. But what's the instrument? Through faith. So what saves you is the grace of God. The instrument used is faith. What has no part in your salvation? You. (laughs) You have no part in your salvation. Not of yourselves. And just in case you don't understand what he said, the apostle clarifies that in verse 9. He says, not of works. Any works. A little works. A lot of works. Some works. Certain kind of works. No. Not of works. Why? Why does he say, I will save no one based upon any works done that no one should boast? One other thing needs to be pointed out. In verse 8, though, you see that word, this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, just a little piddly word your eyes go over, but that's really important. This, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. What is the this referring to? Salvation. Yes. It is not the grace that's the gift. It's not the faith that is the gift. It is the whole of it that is the gift. I won't get into the grammatical reasons why, but it's a very simple grammatical structure that says it's not that just God gives you the grace or the faith. He gives you the whole thing. From beginning to end, it is a gift. The one thing it's not about is you and your works. So let's quickly bring it all together. And this is what I intended to do in my very first sermon on Catholic Church. Let's look at the paradigm that Grayson and I came up with. And you should applaud me. I, I joke. Uh, I thought this slide looked pretty cool. I found out there's a button called Smart Art. And I'm like, well, I'm a dumb art, so let's click on that. And it did this. I'm like, sweet. This is just the four-part paradigm. Problem, solution, commands, and blessings. The Roman Catholic Church, I don't know if you can read it. Hopefully you can. If you can't, um, it's all on the app under sermon notes. Sin is a problem. It corrupts our nature, our humanity. But through cooperation with God, this can be resolved. In the Roman Catholic Church, the problem is something that we can cooperate with God to resolve. The solution, all of salvation, is possible through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but it is only begun and supported by him. It's through meritorious works that you bring it to its end. So the solution is found in Jesus plus works. What is the command then? The command is repent, believe, be baptized, and then continue, continue in the faithful execution of these meritorious works until you're righteous. And what is a blessing? Well, in this life, there is no guarantee of any blessings because you have to make it to death without any mortal sin on you. 
And then if you make it to death and you have no mortal sin that's been unresolved, then you still have to spend an untold amount of time in purgatory to burn away anything you missed. That's the blessings. Now let's look at the, what we saw in the Bible. How simple it is. Again, the problem is sin corrupts. And it in no way, shape, or form can be resolved by the person. What's the solution then God gives to us? It's the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. As a sinless, perfect God-man who died in our place, he alone resolves, he alone resolves the sin that defeats the power and the consequences of sin. So what then is to be our response? What are the commands given to us? Repent, meaning change your mind about who he is and believe. And what is the result? You are justified, not will, hopefully. You are justified. You have eternal life. You have full forgiveness. You are now adopted into the family of God. You have been purchased out of enslavement, and you have peace with God. That's the issue then, beloved. We, we saw the problem. It's our sin. We saw the solution. It will always be and only be Jesus. We saw the command. And we see what happens when we believe that God now blesses us with every spiritual blessing. That's chapter, three, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians. That he has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's ours. It's a, it, it is a good news, isn't it? It's good news for the one burdened by his sin. You don't become a Pharisee and you lay the heavy works of meritorious works where you have to figure out, is this, is this truly meritorious? Have I truly sufficiently become sorrowful enough of offending God so that this will count? Have I truly burned away the justice that needs to be given to God so that I don't have to suffer too long in purgatory? The Roman Catholic gospel is one that ultimately only through cooperating with God, through your obedience, that you will ever find justification. If you didn't know, that's why you go to a Catholic church when somebody dies and you pay them money so they'll do a mass to help your loved one get out of purgatory. If you really are serious, you can have them do a, I think they're called the high mass, but that costs more money. It's all hopeless. And all the while, God says, behold my son, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin. Believe, and you will have peace with me. That is our gospel that we are to love, believe. But beloved, that is the gospel you are to share. As you go out and you talk to people, start with simply asking them, when they complain about situations, what do they see as a problem? Just ask them. You don't have to start yelling at them. That will probably not help a lot. But you can't ask them, what's the problem? I have two minutes, so I'm going to use them. What is the problem as you see it? 
and listen to them, genuinely hear them, because they are under the weight of sin and death. Everyone around them is sick, dying, or, or deceiving somebody. The whole world is just broken and messed up. And they ask them, if that's it, how are you going to fix it? How is it resolved? And then you can always say, would you be willing, maybe get coffee with me after work, because you know, you're supposed to be working when you're at work. After work, would you be willing, maybe one day we could get coffee, and I would be happy to tell you a little bit about how I see things as a Christian. You will be shocked at how many people will say, sure. And there you have it. And now you can sit down and begin to talk and point this person to the one who has done it all for us, Christ alone. Let's pray. So Father, I do pray that we will be that way, that we will have a burden for the lost, that we will have a burden for those who do not know that they could have peace now with you. For the many who have lost any idea of any sense of your presence as they embrace atheism all the way to the exceedingly religious person who is working every moment of every day toward achieving righteousness. All of it is hopeless. I pray that we would learn to have a heart of pity, that we would learn to have a heart that is so filled with a sense of your grace in our life that we desire others know it. We'd come alongside them, we'd pray with them, we'd pray for them, but we would never be afraid of not of telling them simply the truth of where salvation lies. Open our eyes that we might see these things, Father. Give us that burden, I ask in your Son's name. Amen.